We continue in our series, Expectancy, a verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we're offering uh, really a new way to connect into the message this morning. It's something we had done some time ago, and then the format had changed. But if you use a digital copy of the Bible, if you use Uversion on your smartphone or on a tablet, uh, if you go into the Uversion, the live events, you'll be able to pull up all the notes from this morning's message and follow along. And then there's spots for you to take notes as well and to save that. So uh, you'll be able to find that and... If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're probably just using a, a printed copy of the Bible, and that's okay too. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse number 45, and we will turn there in just a moment. I would imagine most have noticed that we live in a culture that is obsessed with talking about faith. But individuals love to talk about faith. If you're like me, at some point this afternoon, I'll end up in front of the television and be watching football. And at some point, I'm sure on many of the football games that will be taking place today and perhaps even some of the ones yesterday, the hero of the game, the superstar of the moment who, who perhaps led their team to victory or saved their team from defeat, will at some point may in an interview sit, talk about their faith in God, their faith in faith, their faith in their teammates, their faith in themselves. We can hear musicians and artists singing songs about faith and a number of things. But when we look in Scripture, we see that the Bible does not talk about faith as an idea or a feeling that is open to interpretation. The Scriptures give a very clear definition and understanding of faith. And when the Scriptures talk about faith, it speaks of an absolute confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. An absolute confidence and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to faith this morning and talking about faith, I want to talk about our faith in Jesus Christ and specifically for the follower of Jesus Christ. If you're committed your life to, to Jesus Christ, I want to talk about those moments that you may find yourself in. And some may even be sitting in those moments right now in this room that you're suspended in a moment that's waiting for a decision. Sometimes in our Christian language, we'll call it taking a step of faith, but you're in a moment and you need to make a decision or you have circumstances that are waiting for your action and you're praying and you're waiting for that action to take place and there's steps of faith that perhaps God's been prompting you to take to move out in and you've been waiting for things to become more clear. One of our core values as a church speaks of faith. We define it or describe it as saying it's never too late, too big, or too insignificant for God. So this morning, I want to look at a moment in the life of the disciples with Jesus, one of those secluded moments, not surrounded by crowds, not surrounded by, by needs, but rather just Jesus and his disciples and how they give us an example of faith and a number of things that I believe we can learn from their lives. So let's look together in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse number 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. When he dismissed the, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. 
They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into the villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them even touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. I'd like to focus this morning on the story of the disciples in the boat with the storm surrounding them and Jesus walking on the water beside them. This story is familiar, and as with most of the gospel accounts, the, if you're new to the faith or for perhaps you're first time around Scripture, you'll see that in the New Testament it's divided in the first four chapters of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give a different perspective of the life of Jesus through the eyes or the lens of a different person. And if you look in Scripture, you'll see that this same story takes place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, as well as John, chapter 6. But Matthew's Gospel records something that Mark does not. It's an, it's an event that most people know this circumstance by. And in Matthew's Gospel, he records the event of Peter walking on the water. He recognizes that it's Jesus, and he asks Jesus to call out to him. Jesus invites him on the water. Peter begins to walk on the water with Jesus. Before long, his, his sight is no longer on Jesus. It's on the storms and the waves around him, and he begins to sink, and Jesus begins to lift him out. And the temptation when you read Mark's account, as we've just read, the temptation is to think, Mark, how could you possibly leave out such a significant moment and a significant event in this story? Well, many suggest, as, as I would agree, that the Gospel of Mark is actually written, it's written by John Mark, but it's through the eyes of Peter, it's Peter's account, and so Peter leaves it out in his retelling of the story so that he does not become the focus, because the focus is always on Jesus. When you're in your storm, when you're in your circumstance, sometimes it's easy to think the story's about us, but the story's all about Jesus. The focus is always on Jesus. When we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves, that's when the waves become big, the storm becomes overwhelming. But the focus should always be on Jesus. And so Peter tells the story excluding his account and keeping the focus on Jesus. Often when we read this story, when I read this story, and I read it perhaps through Matthew's account with Peter walking on the water, it's very easy for me to focus on Peter. And the the other disciples in the boat are kind of the sidekicks, the side story. They're just happening to be there, but it's Peter's encounter with Jesus and this story that takes place. But when we look at the story and we read it, it's very easy to see Jesus walking on the water, the disciples panicked in fear, and Peter walking on, and sinking in the water. And when I re- used to read this story, I used to scold the disciples who were still on the boat. I used to scold them and, and mentally, and I would think, boy, their, their faith was so weak. And, and how could they, how come none of them got out of the boat to, to walk towards Jesus as well? But if you'll notice in this story, and we're going to look a little bit deeper into it in just a moment, one of the things you'll notice in this story is that Jesus never scolds the disciples who are still in the boat. He never rebukes them. In fact, he rebukes Peter for his lack of faith, 
But he never rebukes the disciples who are in the boat. In fact, he encourages them. He encourages their faith. He encourages them to take heart in him. And so there's several lessons that I believe we can learn from the disciples who are still in the boat. There's several lessons on faith. So what I'd like to do this morning is give you four things about faith that I believe we can find application in our own lives. But then I want to give you just a number of ways quickly at the end that that you can take and apply them. So the first, first thing, when we look at this story of the disciples, the first thing that we can learn about faith is that faith is responsive. Faith is responsive. Any step of faith that you and I may take is always a response to what God has been saying and doing and revealing. That goes for your initial faith in Jesus Christ. When, we, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sin and turn towards Christ, it's a response to what God is doing through the Holy Spirit in your heart. That any step of faith is a response to what God has been saying, doing, and revealing. A number of weeks ago, when we talked a little bit about faith, faith when in regards to worship, I gave you a, a, what I called a working definition of faith. I want to give this to you again, that faith is the expectancy for the potential of what God's consistently revealed nature can do in and through our lives. It's expectancy and the potential of what God's going to do. It's responsive to who God is and what he's doing. When you look in this story in Mark chapter 6, beginning in, if you were to look in verse, uh, verse number 45, We'll see that this whole journey across the lake, this whole journey into the storm, notice who initiated it. In verse 5, it's Jesus who puts them in the boat. And we actually looked at this a number of weeks ago in a different encounter with the disciples on the same lake and, and a very similar storm. But that Jesus is the one who told the disciples to get in the boat and to send them out into, what, into a storm, to place them in a position where their faith would be tested, to place them in a position where Peter's faith would be stretched, That Jesus puts them in the storm. He encourages them to get in the boat. So they respond. They're responsive to what Jesus is saying. We don't know exactly what Jesus said in this, this moment. We don't know the words he used. But perhaps he pointed back to the last time and reminded them. Listen, fellas, last time I sent you across the lake and I was even with you, you panicked, but you'd forgotten. I had already told you that we were going to the other side of the lake. And something when we looked at this story with this comment before about Jesus sending them across the lake is we reminded ourselves to hang on to what it is that Jesus says to you regardless of the time, regardless of what happens from the time he says it to the time that you see it come to pass. It's to hang on to the words of Jesus and the things that he has spoken to you regardless of what happens from the time that he says it to the time that you see it come to pass. And we see that Jesus encourages the disciples to get into the boat and to head out into the, sto- into the lake and ultimately into the storm without him in the boat. The disciples went out in response to what Jesus had told them to do. See, Jesus expects his disciples to respond to what they see him doing and what they hear him saying. He expects his disciples to respond to what he says and to what he does. Faith is responsive. We see it with Peter in the story. And in Matthew's account, he responds to Jesus on the lake and he walks to Jesus on the lake. 
But the second place that we can see it is with the disciples in the boat. If you look in verse 48, and I'm going to have that on the screen again. And, and in fact, we'll, we'll have verse 48 on the screen for much of the service because it's a very key verse in, in this story as you look at it. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, let's read this again. It says, He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But it says the wind was against them. The wind was blowing against them. They rode forward into the storm and through the storm in response to the word that Jesus had given them to go to the other side. But it says the wind was against them. Logic would tell you that if you're in the middle of a storm and you're rowing against the wind and the wind is continuing to push against you, the fastest, easiest, safest way to get back to the shore is to no longer row against the wind, is to submit yourself to the pressure, to submit yourself to the wind and allow it to push you back to the shore. That would have been the easiest path out of the storm. But rather than respond to the storm, the disciples continued forward in response to Jesus' word. They had no promise or expectation for the storm to stop, but they continued to row forward. They continued to move in response to what Jesus had said to them. I think the temptation sometimes is to give the disciples in the boat the bad rap for not trusting Jesus in the storm, but it's exactly because they trusted him that they ended up in the storm. It's because they trusted Jesus that they ended up in the storm in the first place. They kept rowing forward against the storm because Jesus had said he was meeting them on the other side. In other words, Jesus wasn't behind them. He was ahead of them, leading them out of the storm. Someone once said that any time we settle for a one-way ticket away from the presence of Jesus, it doesn't turn out very well. And the disciples knew that to submit to the storm would push them away from where Jesus said he had planned to meet them. They were responding in faith to what Jesus had said to them before they left. And for you and me this morning, for our faith to grow, for us to be able to function in faith and take steps of faith, the first step is to identify what God has been speaking to you and been revealing to you. There's a point where we move forward in faith. There's a point where you step out in faith. But the first step is always recognizing what Jesus is saying to you about your circumstances. Recognizing what Jesus is saying to you about your life. Secondly, when it comes to the disciples in the boat, we can learn the lesson that not only is faith responsive, but secondly, faith is active. Faith is active Another way to think about it is that faith requires action. Taking steps of faith does not come without work. It does not come without investment. Faith and action always go hand in hand. The the book of James speaks very clearly about this, that faith and action go hand in hand. While the disciples were following Jesus' word and moving in faith and rowing into the storm and trying to row through the storm, they were being responsive in faith. We cannot forget that it is their action that positions them and places them where they are at. Look in verse number 47. If you look in 47, it says, Later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. And then verse 48 again is that he saw the disciples straining at the oars. When verse 47, it says that he looked out and it was, it was evening and he had sent them out. 
According to the, the Hebrew timetable, the sun, sunrise is identified as being at 6 a.m., sunset or, or dawn, the evening rather, is marked at 6 p.m., and both day and night are divided into four watches of the night. There's four watches or four segments that the day is divided into and the evening is divided into, and each of those four watches contains three hours. The first watch of the day was from 6 to 9 a.m. The fourth watch of the night is from 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. And you might say, why does the time matter? Because it tells us that it was evening when Jesus sent them out, and it tells us that verse 48 says that it's just before dawn when Jesus sees them straining at the oars. The Sea of Galilee, we've talked about this a number of weeks ago, but the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide, and it says Jesus noticed them them in the center of the lake, so they're about three, three and a half miles across. That means that they have been rowing for six to nine hours and have only made about half the progress that they needed to. They've only progressed about three miles after rowing for six to nine miles, six to nine hours. They are physically exhausted, yet they have been very active in their faith. They've been investing into what Jesus has called them to do. What we can't miss in this story is that the disciples laboring at the oars got them as far as they did. They worked hard and they stayed faithful. They continued to row even when they saw no progress. They continued to row even when there was no end to the storm in sight. And keep in mind, most of these men are seasoned fishermen. They know the tricks and the trades of being on the waters. They know how to trust and depend on their shipmates. And they've poured in their skill. They've poured in their ability. They've done everything they know how to do. And to add to it, it's completely dark. They've been rowing in complete darkness against the storm through the night. For the storm to be as severe as it was, any moonlight would have been hidden from the, the storm overhead. It's completely dark. They're physically exhausted. They're mentally exhausted. And when Jesus comes and begins to walk by them on the water, they panic and think he's a ghost. And it's really no wonder because not only are they physically exhausted and they're completely exhausted, out in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, that is the last person place you expect to see a person standing there on the water. So they're exhausted. They're spent. They're, they're shocked to see a person standing on the water in the darkness. And in fact, some suggest that they may have thought it was the death angel coming to collect them because of how severe the storm had been. But yet they stayed active in their faith. Nowhere in the story does it say they gave up, they put their oars down, and they called it quits, or they were heading back. They continued to put everything that they had into this journey. It says, Jesus, even in the waking hours, saw them straining at the oars, saw them refusing to give up, saw them staying active in their faith, saw them continuing to pursue forward, to push forward in spite of the storm. Did they cast off in faith when Jesus sent them out? Absolutely. But it was their active faith in every step of the journey that kept them involved. I love what author Wayne Cordero in his book, Culture Shift, writes. He says this, A protracted miracle often requires your cooperation at every point. When adversity arises and it seems that you have hit a wall, it doesn't mean the miracle or the dream is over. Our role is to stay faithful in adversity. 
When you are in the midst of a miracle, God's part is to bring it to pass. To pass. Our part is to follow. When God calls you to be a change agent, he often starts by changing how you think. He expects you to respond in obedience and faith. See, the place where your answer comes depends completely on the grace of God, but it also hinges on our responsibility and our obedience to be in the right place at the right time because we've been active and moving forward in our faith. Many of the miracles that take place in the Bible when Jesus heals somebody, when someone's crippled, he'll come and he'll tell them to stand to their feet. I often picture that moment and realize most of these people have been sitting for years. Some of them, their entire life, they've never known in their life what it is to stand. They've only dreamed about standing, and yet Jesus comes to them and says to stand on your feet. And these individuals take a step of faith, and it's in that step of faith that their faith meets his healing power, and they're healed. That our our active faith becomes the bridge through which many miracles take place. There's times where Jesus heals somebody and he tells them to go and wash in this pool or to go and do this. And in each one of those, there's an action that's required that activates the miracle. A willingness to be active in faith. And I believe, friends, for you and me as we move forward in our faith, that if we don't stay faithful and move forward in faith, sometimes it may be an inch at a time in your life. It may take all of the energy that you're pouring into it. It may, take, it may exhaust you. It may leave you up at night praying and wondering and, and trusting God with it, holding on to where you're at and not being blown over. Those are the things that oftentimes position you to be in the exact place for the miracle to come. What you can't forget is that with the disciples, had they given up, and had given in to the wind, and were blowing back to the shore. And perhaps they were just a few inches deep, and Peter was just climbing out of the boat to place his feet into the sand and then to pull the boat further in. If they had given in to the storm and were blowing back to shore in those early morning hours, they would have been completely out of position and not seen Jesus walking across the water. Had they not stayed active in their faith, they would have been out of position for the miracle that was taking place in the water and out on on the lake. They would have been out of position for the miracle that was taking place. See, friends, whatever you've been praying for, whatever you've been striving for, whatever you've been, been believing God for and walking in faith for, there always comes a point where it is easier to stop than to go forward, to give up rather than to stand your ground. There is a point where it may not even make sense and you feel like it is far easier to walk away and to invest my faith and my energy in something else. And it's at that very point in your faith that God is calling you to stay strong. When you see no answer, to stand firm, to trust Him and believe that the answer is on His way, the miracle is walking towards you through the darkness. You just don't happen to see it yet because your eyes are still adjusting to what it is that He's doing in the midst of your storm. Just a willingness to trust Jesus in spite of what you see around you. Thirdly, when it comes to faith, when it comes to the disciples in the boat, the lesson we can learn of faith is that faith is steadfast, that faith requires an unwavering heart. When Jesus arrives at the boat in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, when he arrives at the boat, It tells us that he's about to pass them by. He's not walking to the boat. He's walking to the destination that he told him he'd meet them at. But it says he observes and notices their weariness, their their fear, 
and he speaks to them. He's passing by. And I just think as Jesus is passing by in the storm, the disciples are laboring at the oars. They're, they're overcome with fear when they see him. They see the, the storm that's raging around them. I'm reminded that with Jesus, it says that Jesus is walking past them, that there are times in our lives that he is near, but he's not immediately active in the need. Jesus is near, but he's not immediately active in their need. His presence is near them. He's, his watchful eye has been on them. But he's not immediately active. Sometimes we take, in our minds, we link the, the lack of activity of what we see as, as needing God to do, the lack of activity to be a lack of care. But Jesus' eye is on the disciples this entire storm. Just because he's not active does not mean he does not care. But look in verse, if you look in verse 50, when Jesus sees that they're terrified and he approaches their boat to climb in with them, he immediately tells them, he says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. When Jesus addresses the disciples in the middle of the storm, his first words are not to address the storm. In fact, nowhere in the stories does Jesus address the storm. It merely says that when Jesus gets in the boat, the storm subsides. But nowhere in this journey does Jesus ever address the storm. What he does do is he addresses their faith. His first words are targeted at addressing their hearts. He says, take courage, or, or more translation would, other translations would say, be of good cheer. He doesn't target the storm. He targets their hearts in the midst of the storm. And I would suggest for those this morning, as you're in a position perhaps for a step of faith, or you've been journeying through a season and a storm in your life, I would suggest that where you are at inwardly this morning is equally as important, if not more important, than where you are at externally. The things that are taking place in your heart, that when God is working in our lives and working through our lives and growing us in our journey of following Jesus Christ, the greatest growth does not necessarily come from what we do externally, but from what we permit our hearts to focus on internally. It's a choice to decide, am I going to let my heart settle on fear or am I going to let my heart settle on faith? Am I going to let my heart settle on doubt or am I going to let my heart settle on the nature and the person of Jesus Christ who is walking with me through every moment of what I may be facing? What we choose to let our heart settle on is far more important than what we see happening around us in the midst of our circumstances the greatest growth in your journey of faith is always going to begin as an inward growth that most will not see, including perhaps yourself. The book of Romans, as well as in James, it speaks of the importance of this journey of faith and this persevering. And it says that persevering and sticking with it and staying steadfast is a significant ingredient for our faith to grow and to be effective and to be the type of faith that God is looking for in, in our lives as we're trusting Him. Mark ends his story like this in verse 51. He says that they were amazed. He says they were completely amazed. It's speaking to the disciples. They were completely amazed for they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand. And it says their hearts were hardened. Every external miracle that God does in our life, every external thing that he does in your, in your circumstances and in your, fam in your family is intended to have an impact on our hearts. God's target is always our hearts. And the last thing about faith I want to give you quickly is that faith shapes perspective. Faith shapes perspective. 
Matthew's gospel, in, in the same story, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, he expands that a little bit more when it says the disciples were amazed, when he says that the disciples were amazed at what Jesus had done. He, they acknowledged Jesus' authority, and it says that they worshiped. There's a lot of times that you and I, we can look through the gospels, and we can see all sorts of different stories with the disciples, and there's a lot of times where they just miss it. There's a lot of times where it's like right in front of them and they just absolutely miss it. But I think for one of the, the few times in the Gospels, and sometimes it's easier to be harder on the disciples than perhaps we should, but I think that in this account, they got it right. They made space for worship. They acknowledged his, his authority. They acknowledged his power and they made space for worship. They had the right perspective of what Jesus had done and who he is. And they trusted him. They recognized that Jesus was with them in the midst of the storm. And one final thing on perspective, and then I want to give you uh, really quickly a number of ways to apply this. One final way regarding perspective. From the, from the disciples' perspective, they were out in the storm alone. That Jesus wasn't with them until they spotted him on the waters near them. That Jesus had stayed behind on the mountaintop to pray. But in reality, verse 48 tells us that he's been watching over them. And that the same storm that caught the disciples on the lake would have had to come over the mountains where Jesus was, was praying to get to them. So Jesus was with them in the storm even when they didn't realize he was with them in the storm. And what appears, appears to be a space of being alone, that Jesus is right there with them. The distance for the disciples was no distance for Jesus. That he was there. Brother Lawrence said in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, writes, he says, the sorest afflictions never appear intolerable except when we see them in the wrong light. And it's all about perspective. What we see God doing even when we feel like we're alone. I've said before that if you look for what God's not doing, you'll probably find it. But if you will take time with eyes of faith to look for what God is, you'll find that as well. That it's all a matter of perspective and recognizing God's hand in the midst of your circumstances. See, faith is intended to shape our perspectives. It's meant to be far more than something that just is celebrated in this room or celebrated when you gather with the people that's here. But faith is intended to transform your life. It's intended to every moment you step into that there's, your perspective is being filtered by the potential of what Jesus can do. That in every circumstance, every moment, every conversation, every need, every sickness, every illness, that your perspective is on the potential of what Jesus can do in that moment. See, the proper perspective comes when we realize that there is not a storm or hardship or adversity that will come that the presence of Jesus cannot sustain us through. There is not a place in life that his presence does not surround us, and there is not a place in your life that his word will not sustain you. And I believe there's those here this morning that you're sitting at a crossroad, a place of decision, a place of direction, a place where you're needing that, that, that word or direction from God in revealing himself and what it is that you are to do. And so this morning, I'd love to end by giving you Five quick, five quick ways that you can take what we've talked about this morning and that you can apply it into your life. First one, determine how to respond to what God's been saying or doing in your life. Determine how to respond. See, often our tendency is to react to something. 
that we have a tendency to not really to, to not deal with something until we are reacting to it, and then it's a reaction to what it is that we have to do. When it comes to challenges and storms and obstacles and, that you've been waiting and praying for, instead of reacting to them coming into your life, take time to recognize what's God been doing and how He's speaking to your life. The right move is to slow down and to, to let your heart begin to hear the voice of God. And that may come through, through your parents as a child or as a student, Sometimes the clearest voice of God is from a, a godly parent speaking into your life. For spouses, that voice of God may come through, through your spouse, through your husband, your wife, as you're just talking with them and letting them speak to you what God's been speaking through them about the circumstances. It could be through just a friend or a loved one, but allowing godly people to be an influence in your life. It's through God's Word, through time with Him. I've found that oftentimes, or most often, God, what God is saying is revealed consistently. That it's not a matter of hearing it once and missing it, but rather He's continually speaking to us to get our attention to hear, it, to hear what it is that He's been saying. Secondly, I would encourage you to act on what you know. Once you recognize what God's been speaking to your heart about, recognize and, and rather act on what you know. Once you determine the right response, take action. Don't just sit on it. See, often when it comes to moving in faith, to taking steps of faith, we want to be completely sure. The problem is when we're completely sure, it eliminates the need for faith. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this. He says that the difference between those who function in the even greater and those who don't is they simply did something with a divine invitation to join in. They did something. They took a step of faith. They acted on what they already saw God doing, what they heard Him saying. See, if you've been watching for, for God to reveal Himself to you and yet you recognize that God's speaking to you through Scripture, through trusted friends, your spouse, your parents, you recognize that God's been speaking to you, take what He's revealing and put it into action. Act on what you know. God is waiting oftentimes to see how we act on what He's already shown us before He'll, show, he'll begin to reveal the next step that we need to take. But it's a willingness to trust Him in the journey you know, I've had times where I'll sit and I'll talk with individuals and they will share with me about a struggle they're facing or a decision they have to make. And, and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what has God last revealed to you about this matter? And they'll share with me what it is that he's spoken to them about it. And then, then I'll ask them, well, how have you acted on it? How have you put into action the last thing that God spoke to your life before he reveals the next step? Sometimes he's simply waiting for steps of faith to act on what has already been revealed before the next step or the next set of instructions becomes known. Then individuals will tell me that it seems like God hasn't been saying to them anything about the matter. And I'll ask him, what are you doing with what he's already revealed? See, what we acting on his revealed will will lead to understanding his unrevealed will. If you're looking for wisdom on financial decisions and financial matters and business decisions, and it seems like the answer is always just out of grasp or the solution just isn't coming, I would ask you to first, have you acted on what you know, God's Word? God's Word gives very clear biblical principles to live by for our standards when it comes fit for our finances. If you're here this morning and you're not practicing good biblical stewardship, that means giving and tithe and offering and putting God first in your finances, then you need to act on His revealed will before He will begin to share with you His unrevealed will about your specific circumstances. 
If you're here this morning and you're praying and needing wisdom on a relational decision, you're, t- you're praying over the matter of a person in your life or, or an individual and you're praying for wisdom, I would ask you in that relationship, are you practicing God's revealed will by way of His Word when it comes to the sexual standards that He's given you to live by? That if we're not practicing His revealed will in our lives, then how can we possibly expect Him to reveal the unrevealed will, the specifics and the things that he that have to do with the details of our life. Walk in and act on the things that God has already revealed in our lives as we trust in Him. Thirdly, monitor the thought patterns of your heart. See, every journey of faith is different, and for some, God may bring about the answer quickly. For others, it may take years. We've seen this in Mark chapter 5 with the story of Jairus, that there was, a, there was one individual who got instantaneous healing, and there was another one that there immediately didn't come as fast as the other. The longer you're waiting and trusting God for an answer, the easier it is to entertain doubt. So I would encourage you, the longer you're waiting for an answer, the, the longer you find yourself in that pause moment of waiting for the next step and, and waiting for God to do something, keep your heart fresh and moving in the promises of God. Amen. Keep your heart fresh and moving in His promises. In, in Psalm 103, verse 2, it's one of the, the Psalms that's just declaring the praises of God and thanking Him for who He is. But it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion. But he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And I'm reminded that the longer I'm in a hold pattern, the longer I'm waiting for something to come about, that I am tempted to forget all of his benefits. And so I found that when I am tempted to worry, when I'm given to anxiety, when I'm given to fret over a circumstance or a matter or I'm, I'm wondering why this isn't happening, then I'm reminded that because my heart is filled with perhaps anxiety or worry or questions, then I need to examine, have I chosen to forget all his benefits, to begin to reconnect his past faithfulness with my present circumstances, to recount what it is that he's done, to keep my heart fresh in the promises of God's word and his nature, to continually mo- monitor the thought patterns of my heart. And I have found that the more I recenter my thoughts on Jesus and his faithfulness, the more there's a peace and an abiding sense of his nearness as I'm waiting for the answer. Number four, get a bearing on the presence of Jesus in all circumstances. And this is very similar to the last one, but take time to get a bearing on the presence of Jesus wherever you're at. A verse that I've shared with our Wednesday night prayer group uh, our Wednesday night service in our time of prayer often is Hebrews 12, 2, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that our faith is anchored in him. So we fix our thoughts on Jesus, that there is not a place in this life that you will go that his presence does not sustain you, that when you're weary and you're wet, ready to give up, there is always enough of, in Jesus Christ to give you relief, to center your thoughts on Jesus and get a sense of his presence in all circumstances. And that's something that my wife and I will instruct our kids on often, and we have a number of verses that will we'll just they work on memorizing in the mornings. And I, I never share a story with, about one of my children without asking them first. So just, just know that. And I asked my, my third daughter, Nicole, if I could share this, and she, she gave me permission. But we talk with them and encourage them to always center your thoughts on Jesus. That when you're going through your school day, 
and you feel, you feel doubt or you're feeling down or you're feeling whatever, whatever that emotion might be or whatever the circumstances might be or you're feeling overwhelmed or overrun or rejected, we'll tell them, take time to fix your thoughts on Jesus because who you are as a person is not anchored in the opinions of others. Who you are as a person is not anchored in whose arm you're on or who you're dating. Who's a, who you are as a person is not identified by your teacher's opinions of you. It's not, it's not defined by the grades that you get on your paper. It's not defined by your performance at work. It's not defined by any and every circumstance and label that life would try to put on us. But that who you are as a person is found in your identity in Jesus Christ. And that that is, that is what should shape every decision we make, everything that we listen to, that we hear it in, and we say, is that consistent with the nature of, of who Jesus is? No, it's not, so I'm not going to hang on to it. Is this consistent with the nature of who Jesus is? Yes, it is. It's confirming, so I'm going to hang on to that. That is continually recognizing who we are in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, when you're going through life, when you're going through your day, if you begin to encounter things that, that begin to fill you with hopelessness, begin to fill you with doubt, and begin to fill you with despair, recognize that those thoughts are not centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who is described as the Prince of Peace, the one who rules and reigns, and his domain is a domain of peace and freedom. So when you recognize those thoughts coming and those doubts coming, to th- set them aside because those are not consistent with who Jesus is, and then choose to fix your thoughts on Jesus. And so we tell that to our girls, maybe not all that at once, but a few different things we'll share with them at different times as you're going out in the morning. And my daughter, Nicole, had shared with me that they were in, they were in one specific class, on, and it was on really sex education, and they've expanded it so much today in today's schools. And the, the topic the teacher was covering, she said that it was, had a number of, of, um, of inappropriate words in it, and that the topic was focusing on human sexuality and body image. And the things that were being presented, my, my daughter said she described it as just a heaviness that, that really just settled into the room. And, and she recognized immediately that it really the philosophies and the ideas are what, what at 1 John chapter 2 describes as the ways of this world, the mind frame of this world, the ideas of the world and who you are rather than who Jesus is. And she said you could just feel it in the room. And just watching classmates take it in and treating it as just, this is just what the, the day is. But she said she began to combat it by centering her thoughts on Jesus. And so she showed me her notebook page, and I thought about scanning it and putting it on the screen. But she's, she showed me her notebook page, and in that moment when the things were being, dis, being, being covered in the classroom, she began to write on her page, she said, Jesus is my everything. God is my peace. That there is nothing outside of God's will that I will fear, and there's nothing, there's nothing outside of God's will that I want, and there's nothing inside God's will that I will fear. She, began to, she just began to say, Jesus is my peace. Jesus is my authority. God gives me peace. And she began to fill up her page with the promises of God's word and the truth of God's word. That's what it means to fix your thoughts on Jesus. That in all circumstances, we fix our thoughts on Jesus. Number five. When God answers, keep the right perspective. When God answers, keep the right perspective. Have you ever found yourself in a moment when the answer comes and you're excited and you're celebrating and you, you move on and then you recognize that you did not pause and thank God for the thing that you've been praying for and waiting for for so many years? That we get so caught up on the answer that we fail to, to recognize the one who answers. We fail to recognize the one who, who provided. So when the answer comes, keep the right perspective. 
Be intentional to acknowledge God for his provision, for his sovereignty, for his healing, for his deliverance, and respond in worship. It's so easy to pray for an answer when, and give credit to someone, something or someone else, but to apply it even further, instead of waiting to worship when the answer comes, let's begin to create a, an atmosphere of worship as we're waiting for the answer. As we're waiting for the answer to come, you're waiting for the deliverance, you're waiting for the breakthrough. In Psalm 65, verse 8, the psalmist says, Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. If you think about it, where morning dawns and evening fades, it's identifying really the darkest place in the night. The darkest moment says, Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of praise. The darkest moment in the circumstance, it says, God's ear is listening. And he's listening, and he's saying, I'm listening for the worship of those who trust me before the answer. I'm listening for the worship of those who can worship in darkness. I'm looking for the worship of those who trust me when they can't see me. I'm looking for worship from those who who will not be rattled, whose faith will not be unsettled, who will back off and back down the moment a storm begins to blow in. He says, I'm listening for the worship of the faithful. The ones who will not be deterred where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of praise. That we worship. Our first response, our last response, and our response in any and every moment in between is to have a heart that's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And as we are centered on him, it doesn't matter what comes because we'll always have Jesus. We'll always have him with us. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we prepare to close.